Hello and welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service. We're coming to you live from London. I'm James Menendez. The British Foreign Secretary says President Putin himself must have ordered the use of a nerve agent on British streets. We'll hear from our correspondent in Moscow and the NATO Secretary General in a moment. Also coming up on the programme, African countries with large elephant populations urge the EU to ban the trade in antique ivory. And tens of thousands across Brazil have mourned the death of a pioneering local politician who was shot dead in Rio de Janeiro. We'll hear from her close friend and colleague on the city council. She was a bright, young, black, LGBT woman who come from the favelas, the slums, who has a bright future ahead. So, yeah, it was a really big blow, a very, very, very striking democracy. More from Brazil in about 20 minutes' time. But our main story is the growing diplomatic crisis between Britain and Russia following the nerve agent attack that's left former double agent Sergei Skripal and his daughter in a critical condition in hospital. And a policeman seriously ill too. Speaking earlier today, the British Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson pointed the finger for the attack squarely at the Russian President Vladimir Putin. We have nothing against uh, the Russians themselves. There is, there is to be no Russophobia as a result of what is happening. Our quarrel, our quarrel is with Putin's Kremlin and with his decision. And we think it overwhelmingly likely that it was his decision to direct the use of a nerve agent on the streets of, of the UK, on the streets of Europe, for the first time since the Second World War. That is, that is why we are at odds with Russia. Well, the Kremlin responded quickly to those comments, calling them shocking and unforgivable. Uh, But Moscow still hasn't announced its response to the expulsion of 23 Russians from London. Earlier, the Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that would come any minute. They will not be long in coming. In this sense, naturally, all steps will be well thought out and will fully correspond to the interests of our country. So, is there any update on that? Sarah Rainsford is our correspondent in Moscow. No, it's interesting. That was me speaking to Dmitry Peskov earlier today, in fact, and asking him, you know, why is Russia dragging its feet on this and wondering whether uh, the talk in the UK is, of course, that uh, Russia is somehow taken aback by these sanctions, that they're so tough that Russia doesn't know how to respond. That's not how it feels here. So I wanted to ask Mr. Mr. Peskov about that. And his response was to say those sanctions are coming. They'll be well thought through and they'll be in Russia's interests and they could come at any point. But I didn't get the impression from the follow-up questions that I I asked that uh, Russia was planning to make that announcement before Sunday's election. In fact, uh, Mr Putin isn't expected to make any more public appearances before uh, the vote on Sunday. Uh, And Mr Peskov actually told me unless something uh, happened to force some kind of extraordinary appearance, then uh, he he wouldn't be uh, back in the public eye. So my impression was that this is uh, the Kremlin essentially making Britain sweat, uh, making the UK wait for this response. We heard from the Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov earlier today confirming to be expelled from Moscow as part of Russia's response. Uh, We don't know, of course, when that will come. We don't know how many might be expelled. And we also don't know if that is where Russia will stop in its response. And I think uh, the the very angry and very swift reaction to Boris Johnson's comments that we heard uh, today from the Kremlin again, calling them unforgivable, that is extremely strong language, even for the Kremlin. And I think it suggests that the mood is really hardening here now. Yes, it was a very quick response, was it? I mean, in general, though, how has this uh, diplomatic crisis been playing on, on state media? 
It's been playing very high for the last two or three days. There was a time when it was pretty low down the bulletins and people on the streets here had never heard of Sergei Skripal and didn't know what I was talking about when I asked them about it. Uh, Now I think the message is being uh, put across very strongly that this is a hostile act by a hostile West and part of this whole narrative that President Putin has been spinning for six years in power now, uh, that Russia is under attack from outside forces and it needs a strong president uh, to hold it all together and to stand up to the world. And also the idea that Mr Putin uh, constantly uh, uh, puts across uh, is is that uh, the West has for many, many years wanted to hold Russia down, but that he has brought Russia back to a position of power where the world needs to respect Moscow. And I think, you know, the way that uh, the the poisoning of Sergei Skripal is being reported here and the response and the sanctions from the UK uh, and the response from others uh, in the international community is, is being very much feeding into that narrative here. It's being portrayed as an attack by the by the West, uh, a provocation, uh, Russophobia and all the rest of it. And it is, again, feeding into that big narrative. Sarah Rainsford in Moscow. Well, Mikhail Khodorkovsky was once Russia's richest man and then for 10 years its most famous political prisoner. Five years after being pardoned and released from a Siberian prison, the former oil tycoon is based in London, where he's set up a movement that he hopes will someday shake up the Russian political system. BBC's Dan Damon has been speaking to him about the poisoning of Mr Skripal and first asked him what he thought about the use of the Novichok nerve agent. I see there are two explanations here. The first is that, as in the case of Litvinenko, they just don't think too hard. The other explanation is that they want to demonstrate a visible threat. In this particular case, I see the second explanation as the explanation here. As the tensions within the country grow, people leave the country, leave Russia, and the information they bring with them becomes public. So the security services can't take it easy. They want to demonstrate to their own members in the security services that in the West they can't provide you with security and safety. You've made the point that they had plenty of opportunities to kill you, and they didn't. Are you still sure that you're safe? Uh, If one day Putin decides to deal with his political opponents in such a way, it won't be easy for me. But at the moment, I feel much safer than in the 10 years I spent in jail. What's the path away from this authoritarianism? At the moment, things are getting worse. Relations between Russia and the West are worsening and are dangerous. What's the path out of that? Generally speaking, I see that in Theresa May's response, she's taken quite a reasonable path going forward. At least verbally, she made a correct distinction between Russian society and the Russian state. She also said that those who work for the Russian state and commit crimes will be pursued by Britain. At the same time, she said relations with the Russian people will continue to develop. This is the right distinction, but the next step is also needed. The Russian state has around 3 million employees. The majority of these people do normal, average jobs. But at the same time, there is a narrow group, 100 people within the Kremlin, who are a real criminal group that deals with its own interests, not the interests of the country. And because these people are few, the only methods to use are police investigations. This would be the most effective way to deal with this criminal group. Mikhail Khodorkovsky speaking to Dan Damon. So how should the West respond beyond diplomatic expulsions and stepping up sanctions? I've been talking to the Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, 
and asked him first how confident was the Alliance that Russia was responsible for the attack in Britain. Well, this is a nerve agent uh, produced uh, by uh, Russia, and uh, we have no reason to doubt the conclusions drawn by uh, the British uh, government. And we also welcome that the British government will work very closely with the OPCW, the organization which is responsible for the implementation of the ban of chemical weapons. And uh, the fact that they will share samples with them just proves that uh, the UK government is working uh, on these issues in a very transparent way. How should uh, NATO as an organisation respond then? We are responding uh, to this uh, based on the fact that uh, what happened in Salisbury is part of a broader picture, is uh, part of a pattern of reckless behaviour. Uh, we saw the illegal annexation of Crimea. We, uh, we, we see the continued destabilization of eastern Ukraine. We see Russian cyber attacks. We see Russian attempts to meddle, interfere in domestic democratic processes. Uh, and would uh, you say, sorry to interrupt you, but just on that, would you say that you've seen an upsurge in activity? I mean, the US yesterday hinted at, at a greater level of aggression from Russia. Would you go along with that? We have seen many different actions over several years. And gradually, this uh, contributes uh, to uh, uh, a deterioration in the relationship between NATO and Russia. And the way NATO is responding is by implementing uh, the biggest military build-up since the end of the Cold War. We are deploying battle groups uh, in, the, in the eastern part of the alliance. We are increasing the readiness of our forces. We have tripled the size of the NATO response force. And for the first time in many years, we see now increased defence spending across Europe uh, and Canada. But is a conventional response the right response to something like a nerve agent or, or, or a cyber attack, which is a very different form of aggression, isn't it? Well, this is part of our, our response because we have to make sure that uh, anything that, like what happened in Ukraine uh, will not take place against uh, any uh, NATO ally. But we also do much more to respond to what we call hybrid attacks. So we have improved our intelligence work. We've just established a new division for intelligence uh, here at NATO. We do much more when it comes to cyber uh, defences. And we're also investing more, many NATO allies are investing more in, for instance, uh, capabilities, technology to detect and protect uh, against chemical uh, weapons. But is and it I working, though? I mean, it, given that you, you, the pattern <clears throat> you describe, it doesn't seem to be deterring Russia at all. And all their comments in the past few days coming out of the Kremlin suggest that they're not bothered by any of the comments that have been made by the West in response to, to the attack. Well, fundamentally it works because the main task of NATO is to deter any military attack against any NATO ally. And we have been successfully doing that for almost 70 years because we are adapting, changing our military posture when the world is changing. Isn't the truth, though, that Russia knows full well that actually many NATO members simply don't have the stomach for a fight? Well, NATO is the strongest alliance in history, and we are united, meaning one for all and all for one. So why not trigger Article 5 over this? I mean, Theresa May, the Prime Minister, <coughs> declared the attack an unlawful use of force. Isn't that a legitimate uh, cause for, for triggering that Article 5 of collective defence? No, because what we do has to be proportionate and measured. Uh, and uh, and this is uh, not a full-fledged military attack and, and, and there has been no call for triggering Article 5. It's but the as, first use of a, new, of a nerve agent on European soil, what, since, since the war? I mean, it's pretty serious, isn't it? 
Absolutely, it's horrific, and uh, we have expressed our solidarity with the United Kingdom, and uh, we have also stated clearly that the United Kingdom does not stand alone. We stand together with the United Kingdom, but our response has to be uh, proportionate and measured. We don't want a new Cold War, we don't want a new arms race, and we have what we call a dual-track approach to Russia. Strong deterrence, credible defense, combined with dialogue, because we strive for a better relationship with Russia. Russia is our neighbor. Russia will not go away, and therefore we have to continue to strive for a better relationship with Russia. The NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, and just uh, to add to that, in the past few minutes, uh, this is coming out of Moscow, Russia's investigative commission has opened a criminal case and investigation into the attempted murder of Yulia Skripal, Sergei Skripal's daughter, who is a Russian uh, citizen. Uh, That from our Moscow correspondent, uh, Sarah Rainsford, just in the past couple of minutes. Uh, If you want to hear more about the Russian elections on Sunday and what Vladimir Putin wants from what may be his last term in power, do listen to this week's edition of The Real Story with Carrie Gracie and her panel of expert guests. You're listening to News Out from the BBC. Still to come on the programme, remembering the massacre that changed the way America perceived the Vietnam War. You hear a lot of firing going. I thought, holy cow, this is really a hot zone. But, you know, a couple minutes later, we realised we were not being fired at. And I could see some people on the road kind of, you know, running, moving. And the Americans just, you know, opened up on these people and just indiscriminately, you know, just fired at them. More on that in about 20 minutes' time. Our main headlines from the BBC newsroom this hour. The former South African president, Jacob Zuma, will be charged with corruption in relation to an arms deal in the 1990s. We'll have more detail on that a little later. And parts of eastern Ghouta have again come under sustained bombardment from Syrian government forces. We'll be hearing from one of the main towns in the district uh, also a little later after the news at half past. You're listening to News Hour from the BBC. I'm James Menendez. Now, African countries with the world's largest elephant populations have asked the EU to ban the trade in antique ivory. Ministers at a wildlife summit in Botswana are calling on these European countries to follow China, which banned domestic trade earlier this year. The rate of elephant poaching in Africa is slowing, but the number of animals across the continent is continuing to fall and a record number of tusks are being seized. As Alistair Leithhead now reports from Botswana. We are seeing the, the anti-poaching officer now uh, stopping uh, the, the vehicle at the roadblock and uh, a search will be conducted on that vehicle. Now, now one of the suspects has tried to flee away from the scene to evade arrest and the canine unit officer has set her dog on the, on the suspect. And the dog has helped in, uh, in the apprehending of the, of, the, of the suspect. My name's Kevin Vallock and I'm a former UK police officer now working alongside the Department of Wildlife and National Parks in Botswana. Now, you were involved in counter-terror and those kinds of issues as well. Can you tell me a little bit about how that experience can be brought into to use when it comes to anti-poaching? The focus now is on intelligence-led patrol work, intelligence-led investigations. And so the same principles apply as in counter-terrorism. It's an organised crime, countering terrorists, traffickers, wildlife poachers. 
Well, seeing the elephants so easily here in Chobe National Park in Botswana is just an indication of how this country is their, their last sanctuary, really. Half of the elephants in Africa live in this country and the neighbouring countries to Botswana. It's one of the reasons, of course, that the Giants Club chose this area to have their summit. The number of elephants that uh, are being killed for their tusks has been steadily decreasing over the last few years. But the amount of ivory that's being seized has reached record levels. A huge component will be about ensuring that the last legal places where ivory is traded are closed down. Max Graham is chief executive of the conservation group Space for Giants. So there's a big focus now that China's closed down its ivory we need to really focus on the EU markets. The message gets out there that it's really not okay to be trading in ivory. Whether it's antique or current it's not okay. Ministers from the countries with Africa's biggest elephant populations will call on the UK and Europe to follow China's lead and ban trade. Some, like Save the Elephants founder Ian Douglas Hamilton, think it's missing the point. Well, I I think there's a certain amount of self-flagellation going on in Britain saying we are part of the problem. I would like to know how much of the problem, some quantification, and I would like to see the NGOs turn their gaze outwards towards the sharp end of conservation, which is in Africa. And if they want to save the elephants, to start pushing out more effort and more money uh, towards doing that in Africa. There's plenty of things to do. Well, this little thing here is extraordinarily significant because, as you can see, it's an ivory capsicum, so a pepper. And seven auction houses looked at this and said, well, it's an antique. Uh, It's been made pre-1947, therefore we're happy to sell it. Will Travers is the president of the Born Free Foundation. So we then took this off to a laboratory in Oxford where they radiocarbon dated it and they were able to determine that this is actually 2004. If the experts can't tell, then how on earth are the public supposed to know? And I think the default setting when you have that level of uncertainty simply has to be we can't afford to sell ivory. He thinks a lot gets through, that antique ivory is sometimes a cover for illegal trade and believes it's important for Britain to act. The UK's Minister for Africa is Harriet Baldwin. People in the UK really care passionately about this issue and they want to make sure that we save these magnificent elephants for future generations in the wild. The aim is to ban antique ivory sales in the UK uh, this year. That report from Botswana by our Africa correspondent Alistair Leithhead. On Thursday night, tens of thousands of Brazilians took to the streets of Rio and other cities in a remarkable display of grief and anger following the death of a local politician in Rio who was shot dead in her car on Wednesday together with her driver. Maria Franco was an outspoken human rights campaigner, especially when it came to the issue of police brutality in some of Rio's most deprived neighbourhoods. I've been talking to one of Maria's closest friends and fellow local councillor, David Miranda. It was a great event, not just in Rio, like uh, around Brazil and the globe. I saw in Portugal, I saw in Argentina, in the US, London, all around the world. I'm very moved by this movement. Were you surprised by how many people turned out? No, actually, no. She uh, She was this very strong woman and everybody loves her. So I wasn't surprised to see as many people in there. But one of the things that surprised me, it was like there was so many black women over there. And that just shows how powerful 
the image and how she was, it's beautiful. Why was she such an important figure and why did her outspokenness resonate with so many people? First of all, Brazil is a country of like uh, more than like 50% of black people and like black women never get to be elected. The last time we have an elected official, a city council, there was a black woman and a camera on Rio was 10 years ago and before that 10 years. And second of all, she was LGBT and she come from the slumbers, the favelas. So it was so powerful. She's just like me, LGBT, blackie from the favelas. That's why we become so such a close friends. And you will miss her a huge amount, won't you? Always. We sit next to each other. We spend our weekends together. We plan everything that we are going to do, like, uh, immensely. My kids got to know her and her partner, Monica. She's, she, she has a partner. Um, it was so difficult to see her yesterday and talk to her. And I have to explain to, to my kids what was uh, a lesbian couple was. And it was so easy with them. They really loved her. She was amazing. Who do you think killed her? Look, I cannot say who killed her. We still have an investigation coming. But this is definitely a political crime. She was first and against the police uh, on the, the slumbers here and the favelas. Uh, she was fierce about the intervention that the federal government was doing here. And she's outspoken about many other uh, subjects in the society. So somebody must kill her either to send a message, either one of the things that she was working with. So she was assassinated. This was a deliberate, was targeted yeah, killing. Yeah, it was a, a political assassination. Yes, it was. It was. And we're going to find the criminals who, who, who did that. Justice in Brazil can be difficult to find. How much faith do you have in the investigation? I have faith. There's a lot of people around the world looking at this now. And I have faith that the movement that Haddad created around it will push the good cops that we still have, the good investigators that we still have, to find her criminals. Even with a very corrupt system that we have in place, with the cop and the politicians, we will find her killer because we must, we must. Everybody went out yesterday because those shots on her head, it was not just in her head, it was in the entire society. David Miranda, fellow Socialism and Liberty Party councillor in Rio de Janeiro and uh, one of Maria Franco's uh, closest friends. You're listening to News Afro from the BBC. Stay with us. We've got a lot more to come in the next half hour of the programme. Don't go away. Coming up in a moment, Puerto Rico, six months after Hurricane Maria. But first, Syrian government forces are continuing an intense bombardment of towns in a southern pocket of eastern Ghouta. That's the rebel-held enclave on the outskirts of Damascus. This follows the Syrian army's advances into Hamouria on Thursday. That led to some 20,000 people leaving 
The Russian military, which is backing Syria, says that another 20,000 may leave today. Several thousand have already made their way along the evacuation route provided by Syria and Russia. A short time ago, I spoke to Mahmoud Bouadani, a 20-year-old computer science student. Uh, he's just a few kilometres further north in Douma, the biggest town in the area. I asked him about this latest attack. Warplanes and bombs landed on the city very heavily. The situation was very bad. So uh, a lot of the people who uh, were staying in their shelters in Hamoria city had to leave to the uh, regime territories. My understanding was that the shelling is now on the town of Sakbar, is that right? Yeah, Sakbar and Hamoria are uh, very close to, uh, to each other, so the most intensive uh, shelling and ground assault now is happening on Hamoria and Sakbar. And how far away is that from you? Just two or three kilometres, is that right? Yeah. Can you, can you hear what's, can you hear what's that, going on? Uh, when I'm on the street, yeah, I can hear the sounds of shelling, but uh, in the basements, no, I don't hear uh, much. Given what's happening in Hamouria and Sakbar, is it just a matter of time before government troops start advancing on Douma? Do you expect that to happen in the, the coming days and weeks? Well, I'm not so sure what's going to happen, but I hope that the international community make a promise and fulfill that promise and let the people of Eastern Ghouta live in peace. Can you leave if you wanted to? I don't know logically how I should trust the regime who has been shelling the the area for five years or more and uh, has forced a siege upon us since 2013 and used chemical weapons, uh, serine, chlorine, We've witnessed a lot of horrifying actions from the regime's side. So I don't see a logical way that I can trust that regime to guarantee my safety and get out of the city in their trust. I mean, the Russians say they're letting people leave and they're they're abiding by a ceasefire to allow people to leave. But that doesn't seem to be happening, does it? Yeah, the people who left from Hamoria City had no choice. We have to make that very clear. They were in the shelters and with all the bombs landing upon them and the wounded people didn't have the chance to wait for first responders. The uh, rescuers weren't able to get to the parts of the city to save people. You can imagine how horrifying that situation is. So they had no choice but to leave. So you will stay where you are for the moment in Duma. And are there enough supplies where you are? Is enough food and, and water and medicine getting in? The aid convoys are really not enough. We hope that the regime does not cut off that passage and cut the supplies that are getting in and forbid them from getting to people. That's the fear that we live in now in Duma. Mahmoud Bouadani speaking to me from Duma in Eastern Ghouta. You're listening to News Hour from the BBC. I'm James Menendez. It's nearly six months since Hurricane Maria tore through the US territory of Puerto Rico, causing huge amounts of damage, about $100 billion worth by most estimates. But just a fraction of that amount has actually been spent on repairs to basic services, leaving many wondering whether they'll ever get back on their feet. My colleague Julian Keane spent the past week there and spoke to me a little earlier from the capital, San Juan. This is uh, very much Puerto Rico, an island uh, in recovery mode, six months on from Hurricane Maria. I'm in the capital, San Juan. It prides itself uh, on being the Caribbean's most visited city. I'm actually at the port, uh, a cruise liner. The uh, serenade of the seas has just come in. We've got tourists walking off. Someone's just uh, 
walk past me, one of the guides offering some uh, stay healthy walking tours of San Juan. That's good news because they bring in tourists, tourists bring in money. Uh, we've seen about three or four cruise liners arrive here uh, in the week we've been here, but normally you'd have at least double that number. Uh, tourism so important for this island uh, after the destruction. Um, a lot of the recovery has happened but there's still some stuff which just isn't taking place. The hotels are full, not with tourists, but with American contractors who've been flown in here to help the rebuilding effort. San Juan's actually doing much better than the rest of the country. Bear in mind the island's experiencing what is the longest blackout in US history. Uh, six months on, somewhere between 10 to 15% of the population still with no electricity. And everyone, they're playing the blame game. One organization in the line of fire is FEMA. Uh, that's the US Federal Emergency Management Agency. Uh, Mike Byrne is the head of uh, FEMA operations here in Puerto Rico. And he says, despite the challenges, they are getting the job done. The thing about this one is it hit us in every single aspect. And we and we are at the point now where we've delivered, I think, some 72 million liters of water and 63 million uh, meals to the people in Puerto Rico. So that's still ongoing. Why is it that pretty much everywhere I go across the island, people are telling me we're being treated unfairly? I'm going to let the facts speak for themselves. We've distributed over $1.1 billion in assistance directly into the hands of the citizens of Puerto Rico, and that, that increases every day. We're going to continue to plug away and until every single person that you meet going forward realizes that, that we did everything we could. There's been challenges in getting the power back. We're now, you know, we've worked hard uh, to get to 91%. But look, I, I would tell them if there's a villain here, it was 190 mile an hour wind and 50 inches of rain. That would cripple any state, quite frankly, and I've done disasters in, in most of the states in the Union. I want to be clear here. You are treating Puerto Rico in exactly the same way as you would treat a fully-fledged U.S. state. Without a doubt. If we look at what the Congress has given me the authority to do, the amount of money that's been put into the three supplementals, it's historic levels of funding to meet the demands of this past hurricane season. I've had 90 members of Congress come to this island. Our fellow citizens here in Puerto Rico should be well aware that they are well represented, there's champions for them, and that 99 members of Congress you know, found the time to come here personally to grab me by the collar and say, Mike, do not build back the way it was, build it back better. How long is FEMA going to be here? FEMA is going to be here as long as it takes. Uh, Julian, uh, what's been the response to that from the, the local authorities in Puerto Rico then? Well, while most appreciate FEMA's efforts, many still believe that that relief effort is simply taking too much time. Now, this perhaps is where the island status comes into play. Uh, Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory. It's not a state. There is a belief here that if this tragedy had happened on the U.S. mainland, well, the response would have been quicker. Uh, I spoke to the governor, Ricardo Rosselló, and he told me we're being treated as second-class citizens. Echoing that sentiment, you've got the mayor of San Juan, Carmen Yulin Cruz. Now, she's pretty much accused President Trump of turning his back on Puerto Rico. Uh, she's also not happy with the work of FEMA. I'm sorry, but if you're in a disaster management business and all you can throw is numbers around, and I had to say to them, how come 15% of the Puerto Rican population still does not have any electricity? From the beginning, this has been a sort of a race to see who did it better. Oh, no, the Army Corps of Engineers did it better. Oh, no, FEMA did it better. Oh, no, the president did it better. And while the elephants are playing, the grass is being wasted. 
And, you know, they're stumping on the Puerto Rican people. Again, you know, in that, the largest relief effort, they're counting the $4.9 billion of which not one cent have been received by Puerto Rico. Already. So where's it gone? It hasn't come here yet. What is the, I think the new word from an ad is dilly-dilly. They're still, you know, dilly-dallying around with it. Would this have been different under a different if president? Were, look, the world would be different under, under a different president. I mean, that sounds like you playing politics. Should you be doing, should be playing politics in the middle of what is a disaster zone? Is that right? Well, let me tell you something. This has always been about saving lives. But when the commander-in-chief doesn't save the lives, you change the commander-in-chief. The mayor of San Juan, Carmen Yulin Cruz, speaking to my colleague Julian Keane. Now, it was perhaps the most notorious episode of the Vietnam War, the My Lai Massacre, when American troops went on the rampage through a Vietnamese village on this day 50 years ago. In the course of three hours, more than 500 Vietnamese civilians were killed in cold blood. It was a turning point in the American public's perception of the war. 11-year-old Pam Tan Kong survived, but the rest of his family was killed. He spoke to Neil Rozelle about his memories of the bloodbath. Suddenly at 6am, the morning of the 16th of March 1968, Mortars of the American and South Vietnamese forces started to fire on my village. Pam Tan Kong was 11 years old. The Vietnam War between the Communist North and the American-backed South was reaching a peak. There were some half million U.S. troops in Vietnam. Frederick Widmer was one of them. From what we were told, we were going to be going down into the My Lai area, which was well noted for uh, snipers and booby traps. Before going down there, we were told that anybody down there would be considered VC or VC sympathizers, and we were on a search-and-destroy mission, and that everything from the housing, food, people were to be destroyed because that's what a search-and-destroy mission was. The artillery barrage on My Lai was to prepare a landing zone for U.S. helicopters. As they approached, the conversation between one pilot and the base was recorded. 36, the controller asks if anyone was shooting at the helicopters. And the pilot answered, no. Army photographer Ron Haberly was in one of the helicopters. They landed just before 8 a.m. And so the helicopters put down, and we jumped out and... We heard a lot of firing, and we were on the ground for maybe about oh, a minute and still hear a lot of firing going. I thought, holy cow, this is really a hot zone. But, you know, a couple minutes later, we realized we were not being fired at. So we all stood up and started advancing toward a road. And I could see some people on the road kind of, you know, running, moving. And the Americans just, you know, opened up on these people and just indiscriminately, you know, just fired at them. They were just, you know, women and some children that were shot and just kind of, you know, freaked me out a little bit. I couldn't, you know, understand really what was going on. I couldn't comprehend the scene at at that time. There was people, dead people laying in some of the hooches. There was people, you know, on the trail. I think the weirdest thing was uh, some of the soldiers were jumping on some of the animals, the water buffaloes, with their bayonets trying to stab them. 
And just a complete, you know, freak out scene. But still, to this day, I still can't really figure it out. 11-year-old Pam Tang Kong watched as the U.S. soldiers moved through the village. And a warning, what he's about to say is extremely disturbing. In the house next door, I saw three U.S. soldiers capture a woman and take her to a buffalo shed. A number of soldiers then raped her. She fainted. I also saw many girls, aged 15 or 16, who were raped by American troops. They were then stabbed in the vaginas, stabbed to death by bayonets. Pam Tang Kong says there were no VC in his village. As we've heard, no one was firing at the Americans. But rather than restrain rampaging soldiers, commanders on the ground ordered them to carry on. Eventually, U.S. soldiers came for Pam Tang Kong. There were six people in my family, including my mother and my siblings. Three American soldiers came to my house and routed up all of us. They forced us to go down to a shelter, a dugout to protect against shells. Then, this three U.S. soldier threw grenades at us and began shooting. They killed five members of my family. All their bodies were blown apart. How did you survive? Thanks to my mother, my under sister, my under brother and younger sisters, they protected me. I wasn't hit by the granite fragments, but I was injured when the American soldiers opened fire. The Americans thought I was dead, so they moved on to another house to kill. 504 Vietnamese civilians died that day, but the senior commander on the ground, Captain Ernest Medina, said the number was less than 30. He said they'd been killed in the initial artillery barrage and helicopter attack. He also ordered that his men not talk about what had happened. I had given instructions to the company. Morale being low, I did not want them to be concerned about this or talking amongst themselves. I had told them that it would be best that they uh, did not discuss it amongst themselves, that they did not discuss it with anybody else, uh, that there was an investigation being conducted, and uh, that they, it should be discussed with the investigators and nobody else. That investigation confirmed Captain Medina's version of events. But rumors of a massacre persisted. Some soldiers in Milai had refused to take part. A helicopter crew had intervened, saving a few civilians. The soldiers began to talk, and the truth finally leaked out near the end of 1969. Charges were recommended against dozens of officers and soldiers. In the end, one man, Lieutenant William Calley, was convicted of 22 murders. These were some of his last words at his court-martial. I have committed a crime, the only crime that I have committed is in judgment of my values. Apparently, I valued my troops' lives more than I did that of the enemy. The words of William Calley ending that report by the BBC's uh, Neil Rozelle, uh, 50 years after the My Lai massacre in Vietnam. Just let me remind you that you can catch up with uh, any edition of NewsHour if you've missed it or if you've missed part of it. Just go to our website at bbcworldservice.com and you'll see uh, all the editions line up there. Let me also point you towards our website for more on our top story, including plenty of uh, useful background and analysis. Uh, that is, of course, uh, the uh, poisoning by a nerve agent of Sergei Skripal, the former double agent and his daughter, uh, including some useful articles on why the UK thinks that it was Russia that did it 
and uh, the agent that was used and uh, exactly what it was and, and what it does. It's bbc.com forward slash news. This is News Hour from the BBC. Do stay with us. Still more to come. Let me recap our main story today here on NewsHour. The Kremlin says any mention of President Putin's name in relation to the poisoning of a former Russian double agent on British soil is a shocking and unforgivable violation of diplomatic rules. Speaking a little earlier, Britain's Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson pinned the blame directly on the Russian president. Our quarrel is with Putin's Kremlin and with his decision. And we think it overwhelmingly likely that it was his decision to direct the use of a nerve agent on the streets of of the UK on the streets of Europe for the first time since the Second World War. That is why we are at odds with Russia. Also today, the former South African president, Jacob Zuma, will be charged with corruption in relation to an arms deal in the 1990s. More on that coming up. And parts of eastern Ghouta have again come under a sustained bombardment from Syrian government forces. This is James Menendez with NewsHour from the BBC. Now, until this month, the writer Jennifer McCumbi wasn't well known, either in Uganda, where she was born, or in Britain, where she's lived since 2001. Then came the news that she'd taken a big American literary prize with her first novel, a prize worth $165,000. Well, Jennifer McCumbi now lives in Manchester in northern England. Our arts correspondent, Vincent Dowd, has been to meet her. Jennifer McCumbie is taking me to the Writers' Group in Manchester, where often she works. She's been in the city for 17 years, but still goes back to Kampala. Jennifer's getting a lot of attention for winning a big-money American prize for her first novel, set in her native Uganda and called Chintu. There was a knock. Kam's woman woke up and climbed over him to get the door. She picked a kanga off the floor and wrapped it around her naked body. She walked to the door with the annoyance of a proper wife whose husband was at home. The story roams through parts of Ugandan history. It starts in 1750 when a curse is placed. Because this is what the story is about. So normally when uh, someone has mental health problems, the first thing they look at is, is this a curse? Does it run in the family within the Ugandan culture? You don't talk much about the Idi Amin period. When I arrived in in Britain here, most of the people, when I told them that I come from Uganda, the first thing they would say to me, oh, Idi Amin. And so I totally didn't want to involve him. But also he was such a big character. When you start writing about him, he takes over your book. More than 20 UK publishers turned Jennifer's novel down, but it won a prize in Kenya and from that was picked up by a US publisher. Which brings us to the annual Wyndham Campbell Literary Prize based at Yale University and worth $165,000 to each of several winners. The scheme's director, Michael Kelleher, has one day a year when, out of the blue, he makes a handful of writers very happy. First, he sent me an email. This is the kind of news I need to give you on the phone. Because I was aware of the Wyndham Prize, but I thought, no, it can't be. So I went home and sent an email back with my phone number, and he called me immediately. 
And then he told me, yes, you have won the prize. And my family, my son and my husband were pacing around me, wondering, looking like, has he said yes? Has he said no? You know, when I said yes, they wanted to scream, but he was still on the phone. It's until he put down the phone and then we just jumped up and down. Did you know the amount of money he might be talking about? I googled it and then I, I, call, I called my husband I said come and look because I couldn't say I just couldn't say 165,000 it wouldn't make sense to him I said come and see he looked at it and then he went <gasps> and then I called my son come and see he said nah they wouldn't give you that amount of money so when he said yes the, the first thing they said is it that right amount of money I said yeah yeah it is and we just jumped up and down trying not to make a lot of noise for the neighbours. Jennifer says she hopes the $165,000 could buy her five or six years as a full-time writer. Coming next year, her first book of short stories, and they're set in Manchester. Our arts correspondent Vincent Dowd was talking to the writer Jennifer McCombie. Now, before we go, let's uh, head to South Africa, where the chief prosecutor has uh, announced in the past hour or so that the country's former president, Jacob Zuma, will face trial on corruption charges in relation to an arms deal before he took office. Sean Abrahams made the announcement at a news conference in Pretoria. After consideration of the matter, I am of the view that there are reasonable prospects of a successful prosecution of Mr Zuma on the charges listed in the indictment served on Mr. Zuma prior to the termination of the matter by Amshir SC. As a result, Mr. Zuma's representations are unsuccessful. The Director of Public Prosecutions, KwaZulu-Natal, will facilitate the necessary processes for Mr. Zuma and his co-accused to appear in court. The BBC's Andrew Harding is in South Africa. He's been giving me more details about that announcement. This was an announcement by the National Prosecuting Chief, Sean Abrahams, who brushed aside uh, Mr Zuma's objections and said that he would now face trial on 16 counts of fraud, racketeering, money laundering and corruption. These are charges that date back to the 1990s and early 2000s. They're charges that are often described here as the zombie charges in that they, they never seem to die. They've been appealed, they've been suspended, they've been thrown out, and after a long, long legal battle, uh, they have now been reinstated. And of course, the key, the defining fact here is that President Zuma is no longer president. He lost power last month, and suddenly everything changed. The, the prosecuting authorities who had been accused of sitting on their hands on these issues suddenly anxious, I suspect, to prove that they are um, not biased towards Mr. Zuma ha- have now uh, found the, the enthusiasm to start pursuing these charges uh, with aggression. And what exactly is he accused of doing? Well, this, as I say, goes back to the 1990s and to an arms deal. You have to remember that Jacob Zuma had been in exile fighting against apartheid. He came back like many others uh, with a big family and big debts and uh, a lifestyle that he couldn't afford. Unscrupulous businessmen were accused of taking advantage of that, of essentially funding his lifestyle in return for political or business interests. There was an arms deal and it's 
alleged that Mr. Zuma, his financial advisor Shabir Sheikh, who's already been found guilty of soliciting bribes for Mr. Zuma back in t- the early 2000s, that he and a French arms company essentially all conspired to pay Mr. Zuma millions of rand I- in order to win support for arms deal uh, contracts and, and other things, and that Mr. Zuma knowingly took this money essentially as a separate salary to support his lifestyle, uh, never declared it, and as such is guilty of, of this racketeering. Uh, and very briefly, when's the trial likely to begin? Well, in theory, perhaps in the next month, perhaps in Durban, in KwaZulu-Natal, in his home, uh, home area, uh, but... You never know. There's the possibility that he could again appeal against this uh, this move. And uh, although the momentum is clearly against him now, uh, an exact date, I think it would be risky to put a, put a finger on it now. Andrew Harding on that announcement that the former president of South Africa, Jacob Zuma, will now face trial uh, on corruption charges. Uh, those corruption charges dating back to that arms deal in the 1990s. That brings us to the end of this edition of News Out from me and the rest of the team here in London. Thanks for listening. Until the next time, bye-bye. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.